every single day, remember who we are. We are the community of Bailey Middle School. Individuals of character, scholars for life, leaders now and tomorrow. Everybody knows what a good school looks like. One great teacher in each classroom, dynamic principal, high test scores, order everywhere, schedule set, curriculum specified, teachers teaching, students learning. But what if this framing, though not quite wrong, misses the mark? Maybe a good school is a place where the boundaries separating classroom spaces are permeable and teachers share responsibility for all students' well-being and achievement where everything in the school is negotiable except the well-being and development of the teachers and students in it, where students know they are cared for and respond by learning to care in return. Maybe a good school is a space where all are growing and equity is a constant concern, where each one has a voice and everybody has responsibility, where teachers are leaders and leaders are always learning. Join us for Chasing Bailey as we try to figure this out. For several years, between 2012 and 2016, a group of teachers, leaders, and others dedicated themselves to changing the fortunes of a failing middle school in Nashville, Tennessee. They succeeded but their achievement was bittersweet. In 2016, the district closed that school. Still, those who were there knew they had stumbled onto something special, some important educational truths that might help all of us find our way out of the morass that COVID-19 has left us in. In this first episode, we begin to unpack their experience and share their insights. As you listen, Maybe you can appreciate why these educators are still, six years later, chasing Bailey. This is Barb Stengel, a retired professor of educational practice at Vanderbilt University's Peabody College, a fan of the Bailey experiment, and your host for this podcast. Between 2012 and 2016, I spent one day a week at Bailey, coordinating the school's collaboration with Peabody and serving as informal cheerleader while also learning from this remarkable effort. I knew early on it was a story worth telling. So over the past year, I have spent time with dozens of staff, students, parents, and district administrators who were eager to tell me about their experience Julia Conrad, a Peabody resident learning to teach at Bailey in 2013, captures why I did this and why the Bailey team was so willing to talk. I think it would be amazing to collect the stories of so many people. I also think there would be something really powerful about discussing what it was like chasing Bailey even while we were there. It was an incredible place to learn how to be a teacher, but it also felt demoralizing to see how the district didn't even really give it a chance. I was only there for a little, but I remember the incredible stress teaching that year, knowing that testing scores were going to decide Bailey's fate. 
And then that filtered down to the kids who would talk about if they were proficient or not. At Bailey, there was love and there was definitely space to grow. It wasn't perfect. We had to deal with a lot of external pressures and a lot of structures, but there was so much joy. I feel really lucky to have taught at another school after Bailey that also had a strong mission and really strong staff camaraderie. But even there, I never really achieved the level of collaboration that I had with Keenan Kerr or got mentoring like I did from Lindsay Nelson. We will unfold this story over a series of episodes that spans the four years of the Bailey experiment, exploring topics ranging from teaming and teacher leadership, to changing school culture and curriculum, to learning through practice, to the politics of urban schooling. In all of this, we hope you'll find both object lesson, how caring for both teachers and students can and does go hand in hand, and cautionary tale, that even obvious success doesn't guarantee a school's future in the hyper-politicized educational world we now inhabit. We also hope you will hear more than a recounting of what happened at Bailey, that you'll craft a vision of what can be for even the most disadvantaged students in the most challenging settings. Throughout our story, we'll keep the lived reality of the Bailey students, mostly black, mostly poor, and systematically underserved at the center of our telling. That means we have to talk about race, the race of students and families and the race of teachers and leaders, and the ways that race impacted our learning together. But navigating racial differences and the power and privilege that figure in that isn't the only thing going on at Bailey. Let's hear about it from two folks who were there at the beginning. Every single day, remember who we are. We are the community of Bailey Middle School. Individuals of character, scholars for life, leaders now and tomorrow. The voice you heard at the start was Dr. Christian Sawyer, the newly appointed executive principal at Bailey in Nashville in 2012. He talked recently with me and Karen Doris Wolfson, who came to Bailey in 2012 and stayed as a teacher leader through some significant success until the Metro Nashville Public Schools made the decision to relocate the students to a wing in a nearby high school. I asked the two of them about the mission statement that Dr. Sawyer led every morning at the start of the school day, the statement you heard at the opening of this episode. It makes me think about the whole meaning of Bailey. It makes me think about the promise of Bailey, not just in the moment, but for all of our lives. Um, and for me, I just, it makes me think about the beginning of my journey at Bailey and seeing students' faces where they didn't necessarily believe in it to the end of my experience where they truly were scholars for life. What is that? What did I just read to you? Well, there's a story behind that. It was the motto, the school motto that, that became sort of embedded in the fabric of Bailey, the human experience of Bailey, I think as educators and as students. Um, and it was a phrase that actually one of my principals taught to uh, her community. And when we thought about what she had told us, she told us to carry that forward in our lives. And 
it just struck me as such a meaningful phrase that when we looked at it, it became the narrative of our school. You were hired as the principal at Nashville's Bailey Middle School in 2012, your first principalship, at the same time that the school was designated a STEM magnet school. But that wasn't your first encounter with Bailey, was it? No, it was not. Um, actually, I when I was paying uh, my way through graduate school, I became a substitute teacher. I thought it'd be a good way to get some experience and also help pay some of the bills. And my very first assignment was a school I'd never heard of. And I actually couldn't find, I drove and I drove. And I remember pulling up to this huge iconic building, like something out of the 1920s, early thirties movie. And uh, sure enough, I would learn that that was Bailey Middle School. And I was a substitute for a day as a young 20 something in the master's program not knowing that I would come back years later as the principal. But I remember the feeling sincerely of being impacted in such a positive way by that day. I knew there was something in the community that I felt compelled to join. And Karen, you were Miss Doris at the time, Ms. Doris at the time. And of course the convention at Bailey was that everybody called everybody by their last name. So it was just Doris. Um, you came to Bailey in 2012 too. Why were you there and what was your job? So I was, I wanted to pursue my plus 30 and, um, and I already had my master's. So I started Googling how I could get, you know, some, some free education so I could increase my salary. And I couldn't believe it. I saw Vanderbilt had this program that is the teaching and learning and urban schools program that if you taught in one of the, you know, lowest performing schools that you could you know, have a Vanderbilt education for free. And I was shocked. Um, so I applied for it and got into it and then, you know, received the email that I was placed at Bailey STEM Magnet, which my family has a connection to, to which is kind of wild. But um, my grandmother grew up in the house next to Bailey. So when my mom and I drove out to, you know, look at, see where the school was and where I'd be, you know, driving to work, um, you know, she realized that was where it was. And that had a you know a special touch as well. Both of you may not have known this, but in 2010 and 11, Bailey Middle School was ranked last on the list of Tennessee middle schools on every published measure, academic and behavioral, and was designated persistently dangerous by the State Department of Education. Did you know that when you went in there, when you were both starting there in 2012? Did you know what you were taking on? I did not initially, but um, people let me know very quickly because everyone was like, well, where are you going to teach? And I'd, when I would tell them, they would be like, oh, I've heard about that school before. Like, and why are you going there? And um, are you sure you can handle it? So yes, I was quickly made aware of that um, it was on that list. And you know, I remember, uh, yes, I had heard, you know, uh, researched and studied, you know, all of that I could learn about the school and interviewed different people. I remember there was a lot of shaming of educators who were joining the Bailey team throughout the community, throughout the educational community. People would have that same reaction that Karen just described. Um, I can, you know, share very painful moments of the way people describe the school who had never been a part of the community and had not invested in helping change the community or excuse me, support the community is a better way of putting it. 
And so I, I definitely relate to what Karen just shared. Did it feel like an impossible challenge for you? I mean, when you came in and realized, holy smokes, like this is, there's work to be done here. Talk about that first year. How did it go? What were you trying to accomplish? Um, I'm sure, Barb, you remember there were many tears um, in our late night classes. Uh, the first year was really, really hard. Um, I my first period class was an inclusion class and it exceeded the like appropriate percentage of students with disabilities in that class. And there wasn't really any way around it. Like this, we you know worked with the school and worked with counselors, but um, the, not only were there, you know, these academic disabilities, there were also the students were, their emotional needs weren't being met. And that year was where I like truly learned and my, I guess my philosophy and teaching changed too, that students can't learn if their emotional needs aren't being met. And um, Dr. Sawyer, Christian had us, you know, greet the students at the door every morning. And, you know, if we weren't at our post, um, then, you know, we weren't fulfilling the needs of our students. We weren't checking in with our students first. And that's what he wanted us to do. And um, so, I kind of had to restructure the way that I thought about teaching students because I had to think about other things that weren't just standards and, you know, checking off that I taught um, certain skills. Um, I just, I really learned the importance of checking in with students emotionally and it took mm -hmm. that first year to, for me to realize that. Doris was responding to the reality of the Bailey students' lives. Counselor April Roberts shared with me her assessment of the mental health and emotional needs of Bailey students. I saw that a lot of resources were needed and to make sure that school was a safe space because we did have some students, well, I know one student in particular that would run away from home and his safe space was the building. Like after hours, we would, he would be found in the building. That was his safe space. So making the environment as safe as possible, because we had students that had, um, well, I'll go back where I've worked in various school settings. And one thing is unique from each population group that you work with. Like right now, the school I'm at, I have kids with anxiety. Um, another school I was at, their focus was more of housing situations that were going on. That was a common theme there. When I was at Bailey, the common thing that I saw was abandonment. A lot of students had abandonment issues where, for example, I had a student who was simply withdrawing and switching schools. The friend group knew this was coming uh, for over a week and they thought the child was leaving at the end of the day, but it happened. Mom checked the child out at 12. And I remember seeing these boys that are taller than me on the football basketball team having full on meltdowns in the hallway. And I'm trying to figure out what happened. And I put the pieces together and found out it was a kid was simply moving to another school in another county. And we talked out how communication can continue and and all that, that walking through that whole process to calm them down to deescalate because they were so emotional because they've dealt with abandonment on their own personal um, level. Dr. Sawyer was well aware that a STEM program focus wasn't enough, that he needed teachers who understood the importance of caring for students. 
I asked him about that. That is a really interesting question, Barb. Um, I mean, there, I honestly, there was a moment in the backyard where I looked to the sky and thought, Christian, where are you gonna find any form of answers or way forward? I had no experience as a principal. I had a lot of experience as a teacher. Um, and that's primarily where I was grounded is in my teaching. And I think what most came to me was that the brilliance of the children was unchanging. The talent, the brilliance, the passion of the middle schoolers, the Bailey scholars. But many of, I think inside of the team, there had been so much systematic discrimination against Bailey that we really had to look at, you know, re-enlivening that sense of purpose as educators, as a team, that sense of STEM recreation in a way. You know, STEM to me became about rethinking the way we were approaching education, the way we were building relationships among educators and with students. And so the bottom line is my probably very simple revelation as a brand new principal was that it was all about the teachers. Teacher talent's the lifeblood of a school. Mm -hmm. And looking at, you know, the teacher talent and, and energy, if you will, um, was so much my starting place. So did you just hire good teachers or did you do something to support them and develop them? And what's your experience of that? You know, number one, I do happen to say I stumbled upon as new principal, the key is finding and hiring and nurturing and retaining the, the teacher team, the teacher team's the lifeblood. And so we really had to rethink the entire concept of teaching, uh, teacher roles, if you would. We actually completely blew up the budget, broke all the rules, created new ideas of teacher leadership. I mean, my whole dream was that our most creative, most innovative, most, um, you know, those really skilled teachers, which I think is the entire, um, like I said, lifeblood of education would be the leaders of the school. And so we tried to build a meaningful teacher leadership model. Yeah, well, I want to touch on what he was um, talking about with hiring. Um, he, Christian gave teachers a role in interviewing for positions. And that was just super empowering as a teacher mm -hmm. um, to feel like I, that my input was valued um, for who was going to work beside me, uh, you know, made me feel like, like I was respected and that my opinion was valued. And when you feel that way in a workplace, you know, it's somewhere you want to stay, it's somewhere you want to be, it's somewhere where you want to improve the workplace around you. The truth is that Christian Sawyer started his principal's term at Bailey with very good intentions, but very little experience and unclear backing from the district. He tells the not-so-funny story of showing up late in July for an August 1 start, having been given no keys and finding no custodian to help with a building in disarray. You know, I was literally in my office at the time, which didn't even have office furniture. So, you know, like just moments of this naivete new job 
my brother and I went to a um, garage sale and got my office furniture. We just, we didn't know anything about where to even, how to even, um, you know, we just didn't know. I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't have any, any connections, any answers whatsoever. I didn't even know where the elevator key was. There was a, I mean, someone was stuck in the elevator. I had no idea how to help them. <laughs> um, so I didn't know where the elevator key was. I didn't know how to sign a requisition to get supplies. I didn't, I didn't know any of that. But one thing I did know was I felt a visceral connection to the work. And I felt a, I mean, it, it consumed me um, at the time. And it consumed me from a place of, you know, and I look back and I, I think about even my own journey with racial equity and like what were my beliefs at the time. And I felt this deep connection that we have to figure this out for the students in the community. So Dr. Sawyer did have some ideas about the value of a STEM focus, a very clear commitment to his teachers, and an abiding belief in the talent of the students. Still, there were some important external constraints and some supports as well. Bailey had been designated an I-Zone school, a school in need of improvement through innovation. That improvement was to be fueled by a federal school improvement grant dollars for achievement. He had three years to raise standardized test scores or most likely lose his job. Three years sounds like a long time in the life of a youngster, but it's not much time to change the culture of a school. Basketball coaches get a longer contract to turn around a losing program. Why would we think a school would be an easier task? Alan Coverstone, who was the director of the Innovation Zone for MNPS, hired Christian Sawyer because he saw in him a commitment to two very specific I-Zone criteria, criteria Coverstone himself espoused. First, that students' flourishing was the measure of everything, and second, that teacher leadership would power school transformation. He described to me what the I-Zone could offer Christian and his team. Well, I think, you know, we offered some um, help in terms of kind of thinking and planning and, and, and um, design and organization and that sort of thing, but we were not there with a program to offer. What we were trying mm -hmm. to do was to push all of that planning and design decision-making. I mean, we were, we offered some help with processes and some, you know, coaching and support and responsiveness and so on, but basically we wanted the design of the school plan to be uh, constructed at the school. And, um, uh, and in conjunction with the teachers. So we had a little bit of a different kind of tool for each of the schools. We had, uh, you know, we worked with public impact around some alternate mm -hmm. staffing at, at uh, uh, places like Buena Vista and uh, Robert Churchwell. Um, mm -hmm. And anyway, so they, we, we didn't use a consultant like that at Bailey because Christian had a plan mm -hmm. and um, worked really hard to develop it. and. Um, was empowering teacher leaders and was driven by that kind of teacher leader component as much mm -hmm. as as much as it was anything else. And I thought I thought that was great. The federal grant also required that he replace fifty percent of the teaching staff immediately. Because of his late start in the position, he was given some leeway, but still knew there were tough choices to be made about program and tough conversations with people by the end of his first year. Before fall turned to winter, 
Christian realized that the task before him could not be managed with business as usual. He came to my house for a spaghetti dinner and a little free advice. Why me? I first crossed the threshold of Bailey Middle School in early fall of 2010, accompanied, ironically it's now clear, by Christian Sawyer, a young educator who had been Teacher of the Year in the Metro Nashville Public Schools and was serving a stint as Teacher in Residence at Vanderbilt's Peabody College. I was new to Nashville and new to Peabody. My teaching responsibilities included shepherding a seminar in a brand new district university master's degree program called Teaching and Learning in Urban Schools, or TELUS. Christian was my sidekick, mentor on all things MNPS and co-teacher. We knew each other and we knew Bailey. When Christian left my house that evening, he had plans in his pocket. He was going to blow up the one teacher, one classroom model of education. He would reconstitute the school, building cross-cutting teams of teachers led by accomplished educators who would lead without leaving the classroom. The teams would have control over curriculum, schedule, and grouping for their students and the time in their day to collaborate. And he would establish a culture team integrated into instructional teams to support teachers' work with scholars. Special education teacher and later team leader, Lakeisha Harding, explains the fluidity of the model as she experienced it. Um, well, structurally, um, this, this multi-leader model. And so, you know, our vice principals, and we didn't even call them that. We had, I don't even remember what we, we changed our language. Well, well it's not even that. Like Dr. Jasper, she wasn't called a vice principal. She was called the, the what was it? chief culture officer you know we had we, the kids weren't students they were scholars like when we changed language it changed our mindset so structurally we first started with language <laughs> what are we calling ourselves and how are we terming things and what what is the language that we're using within the building um, because that is the first thing that we have to conquer to create belief systems is how we are speaking and thinking and so language was number one um, number two uh, um, it was not a micromanaged uh, model. So you had Dr. Jasper and we had another um, chief executive officer that did something else, but, uh, but everyone covered like different grade levels or maybe you covered behavior and, and culture like Jasper, whereas someone else covered academics. So we have our instructional coaches and then down the pipe a little bit more is what's happening on the team. So we have our multi-classroom leaders, but we also have team leads. Because multi-classroom leaders, you know, we're, we're definitely highly focused on um, the academic pieces and, you know, the day-to-day -day lessons and the scope and sequence and, you know, the, 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 the tracking of data and sharing that and all of that, where the team leads could then take on, you know, what's happening at the reward banquet and what are our, you know, couple of things that we're noticing in the hallways that we need to come together on? What should we be communicating about? So it was everybody had a job and there was a lot of crossover, um, but structurally within that job, somehow we created the time. I feel like we, you know, a lot of people complain that there wasn't a lot of planning 
time or they complain about that now. I don't have planning time. My planning time's taken up. I can't do that and look at data. I can't this and that. I don't remember feeling that way at Bailey. And again, I think it was the fluidity of this multi-classroom leader model. You, you know what your day is. So if that needs to shift for you in week four because something's not working on your team, you can do that. As it turned out, I had a role in Dr. Sawyer's big plans. I would be the liaison between the TELUS program and Bailey and would implement a program of paid Vanderbilt residents, master's candidates learning to teach. It would be those residents, those smart, caring, committed young adults who would expand the relational capacity we needed to make the model work. I began spending one day a week in the school and other Vanderbilt colleagues took an active interest in what was happening. Let's listen to Ms. Doris describe how these changes in the second year impacted her work as a teacher leader. The residents allowed for much more differentiated instruction. Um, so that allowed for you know, the term that we uh, developed, divide and differentiate, uh, which we really, I feel like, especially in the math department, just took that and ran with it. Um, and I think that you know, played a big role in student growth and achievement. You really <laughs> broke the one teacher, one classroom model, I think, um, because people were working together, moving kids around very flexibly. Yeah. Yes, yes, for sure. And looking at data, you know, on a weekly basis, um, not to create a PowerPoint to show to administrators, but to truly change the way that you teach and to change what you teach and, you know, what the students need. It wasn't as easy as it sounds in hindsight, and we'll share the difficulties with you. And there's an elephant in the room, one that loomed large that first year. Christian Sawyer and Karen Doris are both white, as am I. Most of the students at Bailey were black and poor. Many lived in Casey Homes, the nearby federal housing project, where drug dealing and violence were too common and food and housing insecurity were experienced by too many kids. Race was always with the Bailey team as they tried to fulfill the mission they set for themselves. I knew better than to ask them how they overcame race. That's not possible and it's not the goal, but I did wanna know how they learned to negotiate the importance of race for Bailey students and staff. Or maybe the better question was, did they, could they? And the answer seems to be, it took time. And the addition of new staff of color, especially in leadership positions. You know, race and it, the discriminatory impacts within the Nashville context is a whole layer we could unpack. Mm -hmm. um, when we look at the neighborhood racism, um, the discrimination against our students and families and the Casey Casey community. Um, so I think I'm looking back on my years at Bailey and there's so much that we did around trying to build a community where children and educators could be our authentic selves, where we tried to build connections and understanding. But you know, I think there's still far more looking back that I could have done to explore, for example, my own white privilege to explore the aspects of systemic racial, uh, racist discrimination 
And so I think that in some ways we were trying to build forward with a sense of an inclusive and caring community for adults and children, but we had so much more we could have done. I could have led personally with exploring uh, internalized racism in the structures and in some of the work that even I had done as an educator in the past. But by the time you were finished, my memory is that the, um, there were many more educators of color um, and there were white educators and black educators working hand in hand with and uh, persons of other races as well working hand in hand for the benefit of kids. Yes, and I think um, that that's what the student population needed to see that you know they needed to see students that looked like themselves in positions of power. They also needed to see um, you know mixed races working well together, mm -hmm. right? And having positive relationships. They needed to have adults in front of them that they felt like they could connect with regardless of race. One of the new African-American teachers, a TELUS teacher who would become a teacher leader and then academic dean, was Whitney Bradley Weathers. Bradley was also the school's conscience on questions of what today we shorthand as DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Listen to Ms. Bradley talk about her interview at the end of that first year. So I remember going in this room, um, I remember walking up to the building, it was a beautiful spring day, going into this room and there was Dr. Sawyer and two or three other foreboding white people sitting there staring at me, right? And they had these like hoity-toity looks on their faces like they were going to interview me. Uh, <laughs> and so I remember thinking to myself like, I remember my initial response being like, so this is a black school run by white people. That is like what I, I remember, I remember that. I remember that no one who interviewed me was black. And so I sat down, I had on my suit coat, you know, I sat down and they started asking me questions about my pedagogical beliefs, my philosophical beliefs and so on and so forth. And why, you know, urban education, clearly I'm, I'm black, but you know, urban education, all these very trite questions. And so at the end they said, do you have any questions? And I remember saying, Yes. And I took off my suit coat and I got comfortable. My first question is, why is your teacher turnover rate so high? Why are your test scores so low? What support do you offer new teachers when they come? What systems do you have? In and I remember like firing off questions and their eyes were like the size of saucers because I don't think, I don't know what they thought I was, my interview was going to be, but I remember thinking to myself, like if I'm going to come to this building, that's the lowest performing school in the state at that time, there's no way I am going to just put my teaching license on the line just for people who are going through the motions. And so Christian and I actually laugh about that many, we laughed about it many, many years later. He said, I wanted to run out of that room and offer you the job in the parking lot, but we had to seem like we were going through the same process with everybody. He said, but I remember saying to them like, we better get her. And I remember thinking to myself, I think I called my mom and I said, mom, they're not gonna hire me. I asked so many questions, they're gonna be like, this loud black lady, I ain't that lady, I'm not hiring her. Of course, Christian did hire Whitney. And as you'll see, she was soon a central player in the Bailey transformation. She kept asking questions and her questions, as well as those of other teachers and teacher leaders, contributed mightily 
to how Bailey changed over the next two years, a change in a clearly positive direction. I asked Dr. Sawyer about how he understood and recognized success at Bailey. Oh, you know, so many dimensions. Um, number one, the teams, like the human success of teams of educators. I mean, Karen is sharing. I mean, she was one example of this incredible team leader. Teachers are leaders. And we saw teachers and their leadership gifts and talents, I think, start to thrive. And as the adults, and I want to talk about, you know, the culture of the school, the amazing Dr. Jasper, who came in and completely led um, a paradigm shift in our school culture. The teams of educators, to me, and the efficacy of the adult educators, and therefore the rise of student learning and student belongingness in the school as middle schoolers feeling yeah. cared for and belonging. And then of course, um, we were proud of the achievement growth that started to blossom as, as we, we gained momentum. The culture team that Dr. Sawyer mentions was led by Dr. Claire Jasper. She too understood the challenge that was Bailey. As she describes here, Dr. Sawyer recruited her in early 2013 his first year as principal. She literally prayed over her decision to become Bailey's chief of culture. Christian um, was working with a colleague of mine, Dr. Tammy Parsons, and she knew my work at Johnson School and at Merle School in the many years I'd worked with children with moderate and severe behavior problems, and they knew they had behavior issues and culture issues at uh, Bailey. So uh, Christian reached out to me and he asked me if I would come over and interview with him. So I called Christian and I went right over and uh, sat down with him and Tammy and, um, and talked about, um, it, it really wasn't an interview, it was a conversation. He shared with me the amazing vision of having a world-class uh, STEM school for uh, children of um, in that in that East Nashville quadrant um, who uh, were not getting an excellent um, or access to an excellent education. And his vision for that was uh, so compelling. His heart really came through in what he was talking about. And so he said, what I want is a, is a counterpart, a partner to come in and I'll be the chief of instruction, he said, and I need you or whoever will come to be the chief of culture. And um, of course, I asked him, what, what did that entail? He said, well, you would need to develop a vision. I would give you a budget. You would hire a team. And, um, and we need to turn the culture at this school so that the kids can, can even engage or access the curriculum and the great things instructionally that we want to have for them. His vision was compelling. Um, I, of course, I, I, his, his energy is, is just so infectious. I, I, I fell in love with him. I was like, this guy would be awesome to work with. Um, and I said, I tell you what, let, let me walk through the school and, and see what I see. And uh, so I walked through the school and, and Barb, uh, what I saw and you know, you were there is uh, it was at dismissal time and teachers were standing at the doors with their arms across the door jam, barring children who were pushing against them to get out. Uh, the halls were full of children who had been successful in escaping. And then when the bells rang, the doors opened, the buses were out front, and these children just ran like, like a herd. And they flooded out all of the front doors of the school in the, in the street, in, in, in the parking lot, through and around the buses, just mayhem. 
I thought, oh, wow, my goodness. So I went back to Christian after that. And uh, I, I said, I tell you what, Christian, I said, can I, can I have liberty to come back um, periodically? I want to see the school at different times of days. Uh, I want to see what the halls are like. I want to see what classrooms are like. I want to see what the teachers are doing. And he says, you have carte blanche. The doors are open to you. He let the secretary know when she comes, whenever she comes, she, she, she just let her in. So I went back, Barb, several times over the next couple of weeks um, and, and, and just observed. I'd, I'd go at, at, at the first part of the day and see what arrival was like. I'd, I'd go and see what the kids were doing in the classroom. I would uh, tip in and say hi to teachers who were in uh, planning meetings together, um, which sometimes were, were just griping meetings because they were really um, um, not catching hold of the vision that was coming and the change that was coming to Bailey. And, uh, and I prayed about it. I told Christian that I, I'd be honored to come and work with him. Um, and, and basically that's the story of, of coming to Bailey. Claire Jasper played a central role in Bailey's success, something we'll explore in a dedicated episode later on. But it wasn't enough to prevent Dr. Sawyer's departure two years later, and a year after that, the closing of the Bailey building. I asked Dr. Sawyer why he left despite the clear successes the Bailey community was achieving. Yeah, that's, that's a very um, emotional moment in my life um, to think about when I, had, I made the decision. Um, when we ultimately were closed as a school and um, I remember the feeling of mourning, um, of deep mourning that the work, the momentum most especially the work with our students, our scholars, was coming to an end. Um, the school was, was re reformatted into a different um, building and our building was given to a different school. And I, I have a lot of thoughts on all of that. Yeah. Karen, you left a year later because there was one more year after Dr. Sawyer left before the school was closed and before the students were all moved to another building. Is that why you left? You didn't, because some people went with the kids to another building, but you didn't. Yeah, um, it just changed. When the leadership changed, the culture changed. Um, and it kind of transitioned to what I didn't enjoy in, uh, in leadership and education. Um, I had to attend meetings that weren't the, you know, the best interest of students. I had to prepare for adults, not for face-to-face -face interaction with kids. Um, and that just, that didn't interest me. This podcast is called Chasing Bailey for a reason. That's the phrase Keenan Kerr, a resident at Bailey in 2014, and now an award-winning teacher in Charlotte, North Carolina, uses when she talks about her present career in the light of her Bailey experience. When I asked Doris and Sawyer about this, their answers echoed Kerr. Um, it was my most, the, the three years that it was part of the TLUS program and that um, Christian was there, that was definitely the most rewarding three years of my teaching career. Was it hard? Yes. Um, uh, did what we were doing work? Yes. Um, did our students grow? Yes. Did I feel successful and supported and rewarded? Yes. 
Um, so I feel that most importantly, I kind of rambled there, sorry, but most importantly, we, we saw that, you know, what we were doing worked and the fact that it was just kind of pulled out from under us, that was, that's really hard to look back on now. And, um, and then to go into another building and it not have the culture and it not have systems in place that, um, were able to meet the needs of students, uh, that just, you know, it was really discouraging. For me, Bailey similarly was not just a school experience. It became a compass for me in education, a North Star, a sense of the possible. And I've continued to strive and reach for so much of what a team of educators and a community came together to grow, to nurture um, together at Bailey. So interestingly, the way you're talking about this, you're telling me something about what wasn't at Bailey when you went there. What was it that when you went into Bailey initially wasn't there that you were able to change, that, you, that was most clear wasn't working, that you were able to do that left you able to say now that this was a North Star for your career? Without question for me, it was the fact that across the dynamics, of course we had our challenges, but this was a team of adults that was collectively working in this way that positively grows children. So that was missing. When you got there, there weren't people with their oars pulling in the same direction. No, and, that, and I reflect constantly on why that wasn't the case. But we weren't, when we started, that was the biggest missing link for me. The team of, of educators who shared the philosophy, the common vision, the common commitment. Again, nothing against the individuals, but the collective team yeah. wasn't moving in the same direction with the same conviction. So it wasn't programs, it wasn't curriculum, it was people pulling in the same direction. It was people, people, people. I would agree with Christian and I would also say that that leadership plays a huge role. Oftentimes the biggest mistake I see in schools is that leaders aren't connected to what's going on in classrooms. And Dr. Sawyer made a huge effort to visit classrooms often and to touch in with teachers and um, as an educator it just really made you feel valued. This sounds so simple. Why isn't it everywhere? Maybe not every teacher is smart, caring, and dedicated, but in my 40 years of experience most are. If it's just a matter of finding good people, why aren't leaders making that happen? We've heard some answers. Teacher shortages, the best and most experienced teachers are in the easiest positions. There's little public respect and no acknowledgement of teachers' experience and expertise. These are real considerations and require policy moves to remedy this at the federal, state, and local levels. But what made Bailey different? How did Dr. Sawyer and the Bailey staff change this one school so that the best teachers came to the most challenging school, so that teachers felt respected, valued, and supported, not just by the administration, but by each other. 
That's what we'll be trying to figure out in the weeks and months to come. Why Bailey, despite substantial internal challenges and very real external pressures, captured the imaginations and furthered the educations of everybody there. As Dr. Sawyer said, there were no silver bullets for fixing Bailey. It was people, people, people. But what were the practices, the structures, and the infrastructure created through everyday interactions that made a difference? We hope to prompt similar thinking and action for you, for educators and parents who are reimagining school after the onslaught of the pandemic. We'll also ask why Bailey was closed just when it seemed to be gaining steam. But before we wrap up this episode, let's hear from a student, Demisha Hansard. She was at Bailey before Dr. Sawyer became the principal, and she stayed to finish eighth grade three years later. Her relationships with her teachers defined her experience and give voice to the teacher's intentions. I just remember every single day, either I could stay after school, help Miss Bradley or help Miss Harding with anything, you know, talk to them about what's going on at home, you know, try to get like solutions and all of that stuff. Also when Miss Harding created Bailey Boutique, I thought that was amazing. Um, I thought Miss um, Clifford, I absolutely love her. I love her. I, I wonder what she's doing all the time. like. Me and her, we used to go out for Thai food. We used to like have fun. Like I like that's what I'm saying. Like I really love the fact that my teachers were so strong on, you know, having relationships with their students and not just seeing them as a student. Plus, like it was a lot of good stuff that actually came out of Bailey. And I just think that, you know, it's sad that people just thought that, okay, these are urban kids you know, all of that stuff, like, they would skip over it, but to me, I, I feel like Bailey really shaped me into the, like, woman individual that I am today, because if I did not go to Bailey, would I still be this troubled youth? <laughs> today, we've met some of the people Dr. Sawyer is talking about. Next episode, we'll explore just how and why those people came to work together in the second year of the Bailey experiment and how a particular team structure made that consistent and committed collaboration possible. Chasing Bailey is not a fairy tale. It's a story about past experience that points us toward the future of schooling. We won't offer you a step-by-step -step guide to transforming a school, but if you stay with us, we're pretty sure you will be clearer about the schools you want to work in and the schools you want for your children. <laughs>